0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: In the Academy of Country Music Awards best podcast entitled The Hidden Yardage Podcast goes to the hidden yardage podcast hosted by martin and mark lane to the blog and the boys podcast network Yay, that's us sean
2: and for our listeners you can't see i'm wearing my best pair of boots and cowboy hat to record this so i am dressed for an acm occasion even though this is audio only but you know while you got that one big announcement out of the way i'll handle the next one i guess the uh you know blogging the boys now being a website that covers a Arlington saw Dallas-based football team. We just had the XFL, Arlington Renegades, bring home the XFL championship from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. So we are now the uh, official podcast of the Renegades as well. So uh, you know, we figured I need some coverage, and we're going to be talking Renegades football uh, from here on out.
1: Nice. Well, that's really great. We can just cover all things DFW, uh, except the Cowboys. We just talk about the A. The Academy of Country Music Awards that happened at the Star, and then the XFL Renegades. I can just throw out everything else uh, with uh, rookie minicamp.
2: Guarantee you, nobody's going to uh, jump over us on show topics with that with that one down right there.
1: Yeah, right. Um, so you can follow Sean Martin at Sean Martin NFL. You can follow me at the Real Mark Lane on Twitter, and go ahead and subscribe to the Hidden Yardage Podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So, Sean, I know that the Academy of Country Music Awards was the biggest thing going on at the Star, but we're going to talk about the next biggest thing that that happened at the Star this weekend, which was Rookie Minicamp, which wrapped up on Saturday, and uh, the, the media... I guess and the fans through the media were able to get a glimpse at the rookies in practice gear not hitting, not doing any uh full contact drills or anything like that. So what can actually be gleaned from this past weekend in rookie minicamp?
2: I would say just some of the names, you know, position wise, where they're looking to where it seems that they're going to need depth and, you know, guys who are going to have a real chance as opposed to just being camp bodies. And so to me, looking at that list of who participated, what jumps out is the wide receivers. You know, we've been talking about the, about this position group ad nauseum for so long, and we feel like it's finally, you know, getting closer to being a little bit more set, but it's really not. You know, it's still a position where open competition is going to be welcome, and there's still snaps to be had between the Jalen Tolberts and the Semifajokos of the world down there at the bottom, and if they don't step up, then can any of these other UDFAs or uh, late-round draft picks like Jalen Brooks who you took in the seventh round, can they step up? So, you know, there's snaps to be had at wide receiver. It happens every offseason where Cowboys fans second to running backs, they fall in love with one of these down-the-roster receivers that hopefully has a chance to at least stay on the practice squad. So those that participated at rookie camp, you had Dennis Houston, a familiar name, as a UDFA from 2022. David Durden is one of this year's UDFAs. Dantelio Drummond, one of last year's UDFAs. Jalen Moreno-Cropper, probably one of the most talked about UDFAs from this year out of Fresno State for the Cowboys. Certainly has a chance to stick as one of the smaller receivers, kind of that gadget-type player role that could go a long way here. Jalen Brooks, already mentioned. And then Jose Barbone, a UDFA out of Temple this year as well. So, like I said, snaps to be had at wide receiver, and they're scouring the earth as far as Names and options and UDFAs from the past two years, mixed in of draft picks to uh, get the job done at a position where they certainly need more production.
1: And I think that receivers, one of the reasons why they get as much attention as they do, even among the undrafted free agents is because of you know the soft tissue uh, irritations that tend to happen in the, throughout the offseason workouts and also in training camp. So there's chances for these guys to get more meaningful snaps and maybe do something with it. And you know, it's kinda like you you know you, you you mastered world one of Super Mario. I mean it doesn't mean you're just absolutely gonna beat Bowser with and not lose a life along the way from here on out. It just means that for these guys they have mastered the particular challenge in front of them.
2: Right, you know, like I said, a guy like Moreno certainly has a role here, but then hanging over the heads of all of the wide receivers, even the established ones like, you know, a CDLM and Michael Gallup in year two post-injury now for him, they all have hanging over the, their head the idea that, you know, what's this Mike McCarthy offense going to look like? Certainly, rookie minicamp isn't really a chance to gleam anything from that. McCarthy wasn't even in attendance for it, so you know we're still on a waiting uh, period for what that offense is going to look like for McCarthy. We certainly have an established career, you know, throughout his time in Green Bay and here in Dallas so far to take some guesses on what it's going to look like. And I know Brian Schottenheimer, OC for the Cowboys, now spoke to the uniqueness of in his career. He this is going to be the first time where he's been an offensive coordinator without calling the plays, but he still is going to have a role to you know coordinate the offense to whatever extent that means when you're not the game day play caller, but Yeah, with those two things hanging over the head of this receiver group, you know, what's the route tree going to look like? What are they prioritizing as far as speed and where everybody's going to line up? That creates even more competition, and they've already welcomed a really deep list of names that have a chance to stick on this roster.
1: And by the way, Mike McCarthy was, if he underwent a back procedure, and that's why he was unavailable for rookie minicamp. It wasn't like he scheduled his vacation during this particular time, oh, but, yeah, he's not a not on a boat in Cabo or anything, you know. Right, right. He's not doing you know the Ezekiel Elliott uh, workout routine in Cabo, but w- were there some were there some of the drafted guys that again, it's just it's really difficult, I think, for any of those guys to make any kind of imp- impression. Other than with their quotes, like, for example, Luke Schoonmaker saying he's going to reach out to Jason Witten. And I think that's really all that rookie minicamp is for is just kind of just uh, it's it's orientation right before your freshman classes kick off this. You know, these are the moments
2: this week, as we like to call it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's their moments. Hopefully,
2: take it a bit more seriously than I ever did that Yeah, week, it's but.
1: their moments where they get to have some nice quotes before everybody starts doubting why they were drafted.
2: And you can speak to this as well, just as far as, you know, is it a positive, is it a negative on your organization as a whole? But for better or worse, the Cowboys, more than really, probably any other NFL team, there's a couple order you could lump in there with them, but really. In the class of their own, the Cowboys care about, you know, image and culture more than other teams. And so that does make rookie minicamp mean just probably very slightly a little bit more because, you know, like you said, it's just integration for these new players. They're not just coming to any team. They're coming to the Dallas Cowboys. And that still means something more. At least I hope it does. And I think it does. So, you know, when you talk about an orientation all of other teams probably blow that off. Yeah, they're excited to you know, get their players in the building and start having them dive into the playbook and get them in their program. And the program is important. And we can go on and on about the buzzwords. Every team we use for that. But the Cowboys, you know, find the importance in getting the right guys in here and getting these these players integrated into a very particular type of program that they take a lot of pride in. So it is an important week in that sense. But, you know, I know me and you prefer to discuss, uh, you know, the on-field football stuff as much as we can on this show, which is what our listeners expect. And we're still in a bit of a waiting period until that, but not too much longer. So, you know, I watched some of the XFL game and that was a nice dose of some football in the off season. And now rookie minicamp is kind of that first sign that it won't be too long until we have real training camp type stuff to talk about.
1: That's the thing with the mini camp is you've got availability with some of the coaches and there's only so much you can talk about the rookies for example, Dan Quinn fielded questions during rookie minicamp, and one of them was about, hey, Micah Parsons. And j- just the way he talked about Parsons, there's this, you know, this understanding that Parsons is going to be their guy as a pass rusher for the defense. But the way that Dan Quinn still refers to him is that he still – A linebacker, what do you make of that?
2: It kind of confuses me that, like, I don't know why we force ourselves to, you know, Parsons is far and away the Cowboys' best defensive player, potentially best player on the roster in that mix. We all understand that. And, yet we're cool with, like, every other position of Dan Quinn's defense being positionless, and we just write it off as, like, well, it works, and Quinn's an evil mastermind, and it's great. So, yeah, we have safeties playing linebacker. We have linebackers playing safety. We have ends playing tackle. You know, he mixes and matches everything so well that it doesn't matter. And like I said, fans don't care. But with Parsons, your absolute best players who you would hope to also get that versatility out of, and they have, you know, we feel the need to pigeonhole him into knowing exactly what it's going to be. So I don't make too much of Quinn basically telling us he's going to use his best player the same way he wants to get the most out of all his players. And he gets the most out of players when they move around and get to do different things. So why would that change for Parsons? Who's so good at so many things. They just want to prioritize what he does best and what's, most important to a defense, and that's pass rush. So it does make sense that he's bulking up weight and trying to sustain himself more as a pass rusher. It also, of course, makes more sense now that they used a the third-round pick on Texas linebacker Demarion overstone to help ease the fact that Parsons is going to be you know, going forward towards the quarterback more and not backwards in coverage. So, yeah, Quinn's basically saying he wants to do what he does best with Parsons. Still, the team is saying they want to see him – prioritize the pass rush. Quinn's on the same page in terms of knowing that's what he does best and wanting a defense that has a strong pass rush is why they've continued to invest in it. So that's really all I got from this and also the idea that he's going to be doing a lot of his rushing from you know, stand-up position still so that the de- that the offense has to identify him as a linebacker and not quite know if he's coming or going and then he can blitz and still have that element of surprise as far as where he's lining up as opposed to, like let's say, Demarcus Lawrence where you know, you know he's pretty much hand in the dirt lined up at the left end position on most of his plays. He's still effective from that spot. He still makes plays, but offenses know, you know, that they're setting a hard edge with DeMarcus Lawrence out there. If you don't give them that element of surprise of Parsons, it can really be an advantage for the Cowboys defense. So it's all good news in terms of what we're going to see from Parsons. And he's right up there in the running for betting favorites of defensive player of the year, just because of this, because the sack totals are expected to be higher. So yeah, to me, it's just all good news of Parsons and the, uh, He's doing most of his workout uh, work here in Austin, from what I've heard. So uh, I'll be sure to let our listeners know if uh, I see him hanging out there on 6th Street or anything of the like. So I know I saw him at the Spurs game and we covered that, but yeah, I'll be sure to report on any uh, Parsons sightings going forward.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So you heard it here first on the N Yardage podcast that Sean Martin is on the Micah Parsons beat. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but yeah, I, I think it really goes into what Bill Parcells once famously said about DeMarcus Ware when the media was asking him about uh, why doesn't he pass Rushmore and all this kind of stuff. It was back in 06, so Ware's second year. And Parcells said, you guys want DeMarcus Ware to be a pass rusher. I want him to be a linebacker. And I think Quinn is still going to have that same view of Parsons is that he, he wants to have all of the tools available even if pass rush may be his best tool and the most relevant tool in today's game with his how with how pass-heavy everything has become. So I think that's playing into some of it also, to parallel with Lawrence Taylor, who Micah was compared to his rookie seasons and so forth with with Taylor, he you know that was his first skill that was so great was his pass rush. And then when teams started to adjust to it, then he asked to do more as a linebacker, so that they couldn't exactly key in on stopping the Giants' pass rush by taking out Lawrence Taylor. And I think that Dan Quinn is playing that same kind of game with Micah Parsons, so I, I think that, yeah, it may be more of Micah Parsons' pass rushing, but I don't think that he's entirely going to have that role this season. I I still think in some regard, he's going to be exactly that, a linebacker. You mentioned, you
2: know, investing in the pass rush so that it doesn't have to be all Parsons. You know, when Mozzie Smith was drafted, one of the first upside things that we all hit on was, oh, the idea of being able to line him up and nose tackle and a a the Parsons running through the same gap. And, you know, so that still counts as a pass rush rep. You know, make no mistake about, you know, Parsons is coming for the A gap with Mozzie Smith holding it down, which is like the first thing we all envisioned when that card got turned in for Smith. Well, yeah, both can be true in that case. Quinn can be right that that is technically a linebacker rep and it's not, you know, a full time defensive end pass rush rep that we got talked into thinking Parsons is going to be doing, but it's still a linebacker rep and a pass rush rep at the same time. So we're going to see that and we're going to see, you know, development on the other investments that they made. On his defensive line, at at rookie minicamp, you had fourth round pick uh, Viliami Fahoko, who has already been talked about as a guy who has the versatility to play inside, outside, free tech, defensive end, high motor guy that Quinn likes a lot. You also had UDFA Isaiah Land, who Quinn pointed out, and I found this interesting. Uh, He's had his eyes on land ever since watching former Cowboy UDFA uh, Marquise Bell who's stuck here for a bit. So you have Marquise Bell, and then Isaiah Land out of Florida A&M was on that tape. So caught the eye of Quinn, and he's had his eyes on him for a while. That can be nothing but a good sign as far as his development and uphill battle, to say the least, and defensive end with some of the premier names that the Cowboys already have in terms of making this roster. But yeah, it's going to be a versatile defense. They're going to move guys around. They're invested in what they have up front to help this back end you know, gel together, considering how many players they use there and injuries that they always seem to sustain and what you could have to go through there. But there's going to be games where Parsons, you know, his best skill and trait that you're going to need is I'm thinking about those Eagles games where they appear built to just misdirection teams to death this year with, you know, Jalen Hurts running games and think back to what he did most recently in the Super Bowl, and then adding DeAndre Swift and those stable of running backs that they could just misdirection you with. So, do you want Parsons always, you know, flying around Hurts so letting him step up and create those rushing lanes? Or do you want him freed up to go sideline to sideline and stop some of these ops and running plays? You know, you'll see a mix of all of that, like I've been saying. So, yeah, thinking about those Eagles games is something that you're going to want that versatility in particular for Parsons. I know we talk about this team being built Specific way to beat the 49ers and getting over that hump in the playoffs, but that starts with maybe reclaiming the NFC East title and being able to avoid the 49ers to some extent. And they can do that. It's going to take beating the Eagles, you know, at least once in your divisional game. So that's a highlight matchup for Parsons to really be that jack of all trades player that we got scared he wouldn't be at the beginning of the offseason. With we'll the start of rookie mini camp, we're hearing that he's pretty much just going to be the same old Parsons with just a slightly. Add a benefit to what he does best, which is getting after quarterbacks.
1: Yeah, but here's the thing. The defense, they could play just at an absolute great level. And they could be the 2,000 Ravens. But if (laughs) the Cowboys don't get their kicker situation straightened out, well, it could be trouble for them. And over the minicamp, John Fossil talked about veteran options available for Dallas. He gave three specific kickers that are on the street right now. But he also mentioned a fourth that Cowboys fans are very familiar with. I think everybody is familiar with, in Brett Maher. Sean, would you bet your life on Brett Maher if they brought him back and he was kicking for the Cowboys again? Would you bet your life on it, like the old Groucho Marx show?
2: (laughs) Man, I don't know about betting my life on it, but, you know, actually, you got me looking at both ACM Award nominees and kicker stats in preparation of this show, so it shows where we are in the offseason. But, you know, Brett Maher, hey, to his credit, he was, you know, 14 of 14 last time kicking for the Cowboys last year on field goals from 20 to 39 yards. Out of 62 from that range in his career, he's only missed four. So that's really the range where if you have – An offense they're expecting to have with the Cowboys that is, you know, Brian Schottenheimer said this too. They've always been near the top of the league in points and output. I know we talk about some of those being, you know, empty yards and they don't get it done in the big spots. Well, that's tenable too. But they put up the numbers. They have an offense that's still going to be ranked highly and count on putting the ball in the end zone to win games. So if you can be that offense and do that, which is what Mike McCarthy not only is hoping for but really needs as far as his job security, then the kicker from 20 to 39 yards, that was perfect a year ago for you and accurate throughout his entire career. That's really all you need. And, you know, they led, like I said, they led the NFL in touchdowns at 21. They were third behind the two Super Bowl teams and the Chiefs and Eagles last year. So I always hate circling back to this point when we talk about kickers, like, oh, well, you win the game putting the ball in the end zone anyway. <laughs> you do need to make kicks. And, you know, Maha is shown that to whatever extent he can do that, the Cowboys both trust it and don't trust it at different times because John Fossil also said that they're considering just about quote anybody on earth (laughs) to be a kicker in here right now. So I don't know if that's the ringing endorsement on specifically Maher, that he's going to be the guy that comes in here. But yeah, when you look at the numbers on Maher, you know, it's always hard to take a look at good stats and be uh, in the mindset that you're going to find anything better. So, you know, he's right down the middle as far as some accuracy numbers and, At this point in the offseason, can you find better a kicker? I have no idea. And if they do, then good on the Cowboys who I wouldn't say proving us wrong, but, you know, addressing something that they need to address. But if they address it with Brett Maher, yeah, the numbers are what they are. And his track record is what it is. He has teammates that still believe in him in this locker room. And uh, we'll go ahead and settle up our playoff hopes again to Brett Maher, because what could go wrong this time? Oh,
1: yeah, what could go wrong? Dallas signed Tristan Vezcano. right there near the end of the their season and he's still on he's still in the building so he's really unproven um just bounced on and off of practice squads and off season rosters uh he was with the 49ers and 2020 in an official capacity. Same with the Chargers in 21. And then the Cardinals in 22. So you've got Viscano, who may be able to earn the job competing against himself. And I think that may be the route that the Cowboys are going to take. I think they're going to try to let a younger, more affordable option win the role. But I think it's going to be on a short leaf, a short leash. And I think it's going to cost them. Or I should say, there's going to be a big collateral put up uh, for this guy to win the job. What I mean is, I think they may go four games into the regular season at most for the guy to show that he can kick the field goals, and extra points. More importantly, that he can boot the ball for a touchback, not kick it out of bounds, not out the coverage in some way, that he can actually help execute some of John Fossil's kickoff coverage schemes. And so you'll have all of those elements. In addition, I know I said more importantly, There's nothing more important, I think, than getting the ball through the uprights. Um, But I think that will have the highest percentage value. And then it's what he can do as a kicker for kickoff coverage that I think is going to play a factor into it. And And if Viscano can't do it, then I think they will go the veteran route. And usually when teams go with a veteran route, they don't mess around anymore. Take, for example, the Indianapolis Colts in 2009. Adam Vinatieri gets injured after six games. They get Matt Stover. No questions asked. Take the Cowboys in 93. Lynn Elliott was missing kicks through the first two games. They start 0-2. Obviously, not having Evan Smith was a big portion of that as well. But they didn't mess around. They got the proven Eddie Murray and saddled him up and defended their Super Bowl championship. So I think that's the route the Cowboys may take when you hear the names of Robbie Gold and the like mentioned by John Fossil.
2: When you have a team that's you know, finally consistently making the playoffs. And the Cowboys, for as long as we've been following them, have always talked about, you know, it's pretty much Super Bowl or bust every year and just how unfair that is, is segment for another time or what have you. But, you know, you have a team that goes in every year with the locker room being convinced that they can make something of this. And there's no faster way to lose a locker room potentially than, you know, running out a kicker who's not holding up it's not the easiest job on an NFL field, you know, skill-wise, but it's the easiest as far as defining whether you're doing your job or not. You know, there's no breaking down all 22 to tell you if a kicker is doing a good good job. So it's easy to lose a locker room if it's like, hey, we're all doing our job, complex schemes, offense, defense, this, that. We're throwing for 400 yards a game. We're getting turnovers with Dan Quinn. The damn kicker is not putting the ball for the uprights. Well, that's, you know, something that can certainly turn a locker room and, Especially if it's losing your games and costing you games in the standings or, you know, ending your season in a playoff run type of situation. So to that point, it's almost baffling that the Cowboys don't have this addressed more at this point. But like you said, the veteran option, even this late in the off-season or into the regular season, has gone well for teams. So John Foster knows what he's doing here and they have some names that they're going to to give a try already and... If these names can step up, then that's even better for them as far as just a roster stability standpoint and being able to develop one of these young kickers to get the
1: job done. Or
2: you go back to Brett Maher. I mean, all options are on the table for them right now.
1: What would you do if they got Mason Crosby? <laughs> they would have to uh,
2: move the Thanksgiving game or move the Jets game to Thanksgiving, like we all thought it would be. I mean, if the Aaron Rodgers return against McCarthy storyline is not good enough. You got to sell America on Thanksgiving on Mason Cosby against his old head coach, so that would be the tipping point for Jets-Cowboys to get moved to Thanksgiving. Yeah, it would have to be, wouldn't it? I do kind of like that they're both divisional games this year, though, with the, the Lions are playing Green Bay, right, and then Cowboys in Washington, so I've always kind of felt weird about divisional games on Thanksgiving, because like, it feels like a spot where you don't need to do it, you know? It's like... Yeah, the dedicated fans still find a way to watch, but, like, some people end up, you know, you're on the road or you're with family, you get distracted a bit, so it's not always a game where you can give, like, your full undivided attention, and divisional divisional game, that's usually what you want to do, so I always like when they use it to, like, highlight a different type of matchup and get a team that you wouldn't normally watch on even a Sunday, and you get them on Thanksgiving, and now you're watching that team with your family, so... Sometimes I don't like divisional games on that day, but the fact that both the Cowboys are Lions are playing in the division, that makes it interesting and we'll see what the playoff implications are for both teams at that point.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away.
1: Indeed. Let me ask you this. So is Thanksgiving part of your five-game stretch of the Cowboys schedule that may define their season?
2: It's not. I went with, and this feels like a, not a lame answer, but just, I would have come up with something else. But I don't see any way around the Cowboys defining five-game stretch being the last five, basically the last five of the year. Weeks 14 through 18. And big reason for this, looking at it, I'll give the opponents in a second here, is... I don't see, you know, a, I see a stretch where you know this defense is going to be good all year. At least that's certainly the expectation and the way they've drafted. But coming off the heels of a playoff game, we only gave up 19 points and you still lost. I mean, no hating on Dan Quinn of this defense at all, but how much more defensive minded of a team can you be and still try to win? You, know, you mentioned you could beat the 2000 Ravens. Well, you know, that's, hasn't been replicated really since as far as that much of a defensive forward team winning a championship. So look, this team is all in on trying to have a defense that can win games because they proved it even when Cooper Rush was their quarterback last year. So that's still great. But this is the stretch at the end of the year where we're going to find out if it's a defense that can actually go into the playoffs. And I see offenses on this schedule that will make sure that they test that to the max. I didn't see any of the stretch where The defense is really going to be tested in every single game like this to where they can't just win you the game. We all feel like they can emulate that in the playoffs and and that doesn't quite work out. So weeks 14 through 18, you got the Eagles on Sunday Night Football at home. We hit the nail on the head, mentioning last week that that would be a primetime game. So you got the Eagles at home, huge NFC East implications. Very next week, you're at the Bills, an offense that will certainly test you with Josh Allen. Week after that, you stay in AFC East type play and you're at the Dolphins. Offense that can stretch the field, a whole lot of speed, another good test for the defense. Versus the Lions on Monday Night Football Week 17, that's a potential matchup of two playoff teams if the hype is real for Dan Campbell's team there in Detroit and in Week 18 at the Commanders. You know, all possibilities are on the table for that game as far as if it's going to mean anything for the Cowboys. Are they resting starters? Are they playing for seeding? What do the Commanders look like at that point, this or that? Long way to be determined for that one. But the offenses that are going to test the defense that they're pretty much going all in on as far as being the bell cow of why they win games is going to run the gauntlet at the end of the year to prove that they can actually go into the playoffs capable of carrying this team with the Eagles, Bills, Dolphins, Lions, and Commanders.
1: For me, I went earlier in the year, starting weeks 5 through 10. Starts off Sunday night football at uh, the 49ers, the scene of the crime where Dallas, you know, lost in the divisional. And if they can win that game, I think it'll just make a statement that, hey, yeah, they got better. If they lose, oh, it's the same old Cowboys. Can't beat the 49ers. Then the Monday Nighter the next week at the Los Angeles Chargers, uh, who was responsible for the success the last two years. Dan Quinn or Kellen Moore, and that will be regardless. And whoever wins will be responsible in everybody's mind. Uh, The next week, the Rams—that will be, you know, a significant game because it's Mike McCarthy versus one of the younger minds in the game, still respected in Sean McVay. Week nine, of course, the Philadelphia Eagles. They're biggest NFC East rival and then the week 10 against the up-and-comers with the New York Giants two games that really give you a barometer of where the Cowboys are where their foes are just where the NFC East is in general and those are my five that's my five game stretch
2: yeah I'm a doomsday scenario where we're going into the bye after back-to-back losses against the 49ers again and the Chargers of Kellen Moore and it's just Nothing but distracting questions for Cowboys coaches you know, being asked about what it was like to lose to the Niners again what it was like to lose to Cowan or any of those things. And then you, you have to come out for a Rams game and find the energy to not be already looking ahead to the Eagles or the Giants, but focus on what could still be a dangerous Rams team and McVay and all that that you hit on. So that's a good stretch to pick. I even mentioned last week that the Rams game could be a candidate for primetime because of the reason of you know, at some point in the schedule, they're going to have another Jaguars-type game where they lose, and nobody expected it and saw it coming, and if that game gets buried in a 1 o'clock window like it did for the Jags, and that's not as great for ratings as a national audience watching the Cowboys lose a game they're not supposed to, so that felt like a play for the Rams game, and it's a win-win, because if the Cowboys do come out on top of that game, then you also get to hype them up as, oh, you know, they beat this other fringe NFC contender, they're going to be dangerous again this year. So. The way that game is positioned, where you have the Eagles and Giants coming off of it in the NFL schedule, really trying to play the Giants into being a true third contender in the NFC East. We all think it's the Cowboys and Eagles front running right now, but the fact that the opener is Sunday Night Football Week 1 there, and then in the night game, or then the home game being right after coming from Philadelphia, really trying to make the Giants uh, contender in this thing. So by Week 10, we should be able to see uh, you know, what both those teams are made out of.
1: What's funny is the last time the Cowboys won on opening day was in 2019 against the New York Giants, who they've basically only lost to once on opening day in the entire series history. And yes, again, Sunday night football, week 14, Dallas, Philadelphia, 20 consecutive seasons – and no one will talk
2: about it! That is kind of crazy. That is a crazy stat. I worked that into my article talking about what games we thought would go primetime, which I think we did pretty good on. I'm happy that the Lions game made it onto a Monday night, a late season Monday night. You know ESPN is just hoping and praying the Lions are everything we think they could be as far as a contender. in The NFC, how much fun would that be to have two contending teams on Monday Night Football in Week 17, Eagles. um, Seahawks being a Thursday night feels kind of weird to me. I don't know. That's a weird game for... Thursday night football but so we'll get up for it week 14 Cowboys Seahawks uh, on Thursday night.
1: You know, I talk a lot of smoke on this podcast and I realize that I am just I'm going to try to get hold of somebody at NBC Sports and lay it out for them and say, "Look, there's been no division rivalry in the NFL. It's gone been in primetime for 20 consecutive seasons." And NBC has aired a majority of those games. And if Jason Garrett's coming back to sit along for the ride with Tony Dungy at the desk again, well, he's coached in some of them. I don't know why they don't even make a segment out of it. But, again, that may be me. People get protective of certain stats and all that. Maybe if I called it, you know, with the 20 consecutive, well, that's above the expected points average of consecutive primetime games. Then it'll get mentioned, right?
2: Well, 20 is just a nice, such a nice even number to hit. So, yeah, if now is the time to mention it, I mean, if not, we got to drag this thing on to 25, which will probably happen anyway. But, you know, who knows what we're doing in five years, any of these players, coaches, and us included. So, hey, it either drags on to 25 or we get to sell it out here at 20. So let's make it happen on NBC for a nice even 20 in a big game down there in week 14.
1: It is kind of shocking that Dallas and Philadelphia have both been nationally relevant for 20 consecutive years to warrant this, though.
2: Just the hate between the fan bases, too, I think even makes it, though. I mean, both teams could be winless going into this, and NBC, would, you would think it would be a losing their minds, saying, you know, how do we get stuck with this game? But it would turn out, you know, it's like Alabama and Auburn fans, if they go winless into the Iron Bowl, whoever wins, still had a great season, well you know, Cowboys-Eagles still kind of feel the same way. Not so much going into this year because one team just went to the Super Bowl and the other was hoping to, you know, certainly be a playoff contender again. So certainly not too much in recent history, but even going as far back as you want in this 20-year stretch, if you can find a year where the Cowboys and Eagles both weren't good, I'm sure the primetime game between them still did fine just from a rivalry perspective.
1: Indeed. Another thing that did fine this past weekend was the American Country Music Awards at the Star I think it was great to merge basically the world's biggest sports brand with with c- the country music awards which has just such a tremendous influence not only in the south but even in the midwest too just anywhere where there's uh you know r- just a rural situation I mean, people love that music.
2: Absolutely, it was really cool to see. I'm still kind of catching up on some clips and you know some of the performances and the duets that went down. That's always kind of the best part of ACMs when it comes to new collaborations that end up leading to those artists working together on albums and concerts and all that good stuff. So a couple highlights to tie both country music things that we've mentioned on this show and the football world into what happened at the star for ACM Awards. Chris Stapleton won Entertainer of the Year, so well deserved for not only a great guy, great performer, but football fans will, of course, recognize him as the national anthem performer at the last Super Bowl. So you saw him playing anthem, and he played that into Entertainer of the Year. Chris Stapleton, who is about to be opening on this uh, ongoing/slash upcoming—I'm not sure exactly where it's falling right now—but I know they have a couple of dates coming up, including in Texas uh, in the fall. This George Strait tour going on, so anytime you could be part of a George Strait tour, it shows that you're worthy of Entertainer of the Year, and that's where. Chris Stapleton ended up female artist of the year. No surprise to anybody that listens to anything country. Lainey Wilson has been a rising star for a long time. Um, she plays. She had a busy weekend in Texas a couple of weeks ago. She played the last weekend of Austin rodeo, or the last day of Austin rodeo on a Friday night, I think, and then Saturday she was in AT&T Stadium as part of the ongoing Luke Combs tour. She's been playing with him and opening with Luke Combs, who of course was nominated for plenty on this night. As well, Laney Wilson also took home Album of the Year with Bellbottom Country, which has a lot of songs that I like. So she's been on fire. Can't wait to get new music from Laney Wilson, who won Female Artist of the Year in a really great crowd of uh, nominees, too. I don't have all of them in front of me, but you had some big names there, like Carly Pierce, who was on Kenny Chesney's tour. You had um, Miranda Lambert, who I know a lot of fans of down here in Texas. So Laney Wilson sticks out from the crowd there. Group of the year, this is awesome for me to see, personally. Old Dominion getting out, I don't know how fair this is to say, but getting out from the shadows of a Kenny Chesney tour. They've been the perfect opener to Kenny for years. He's had them on the road, which is still a huge deal to be you know, an opener for a guy like Chesney. But Old Dominion and Kenny have gone together for years. They finally have their own tour, though. It's going on right now their own headlining tour, and they won Group of the Year. I saw them as the opener to Chesney in Montana. They bring so much energy, so much fun to the show. If you could tell in their performance that they've learned a lot from being on the road with Chesney's band. They sound very similar, and they perform kind of the same way, the way they move on stage and everything. So Old Dominion, those guys are awesome, and to see them win Group of the Year, that was really cool. And then a little hat tip to a classic country. You know, I don't think any current artist pays respect to classic country better than Cole Swindell right now. And his song, See How Me It Heads Carolina, which is, of course, a tip to the original Joe D. Messina's uh, Heads Carolina, Tales California, it won single and song of the year. And he got to perform it with Joe Messina uh, coming on stage with him. So that was a cool crossover. Cole has a number of songs that mention, you know, throwback type country. And it's not done in that arbitrary way that a lot of artists are doing where it's not as meaningful. You know, I think of a song like Damn Straight by Scotty McReary, which references a bunch of George Strait songs. That's another example of one that's actually well done. So, Coles Wendell, a lot of really cool songs, but probably none cooler at the moment, of course, than the single and song of the year. She Had Me at Heads Carolina, a cool live performance of that. The other live performance I did watch was Rainey Wilson, again, your female artist of the year, uh, singing Grease, and they had pyrotechnics going off in the background and a lot of cool stuff there. So, yeah, Like I said, it's still a little bit for me to catch up on over the weekend, but from what I've seen and from all these nominees, country music is in good hands going forward, and I'll be sure to tell our audience uh, the next country show I plan on attending, so hopefully that's sometime soon this summer.
1: Yeah, and we'll have to have an update on that. Uh, let's go ahead and get the Cowboys' birthdays before we get out of here on Monday. Emmitt Smith turns 54 years old. Uh, everybody knows who Emmitt Smith is. Uh, then on Monday, just for Sean Nate Hemsley played linebacker from 97 to 99, turns 49 years old, and he's from Willingboro, New Jersey. Where's that, Sean?
2: Hey, that's way in the southwest part of the state, so he probably grew up around a lot of Eagles fans, uh, Philadelphia sports fans in general, Phillies, Sixers, Flyers, all that, and hopefully calls the pork at least. But, yeah, uh, that is uh, firmly in the Philadelphia territory sports fan area of New Jersey. And then
1: on Thursday, uh, former... Cowboys all-pro left tackle Flozell Adams turns 48 years old. Those are your Cowboys birthdays.
2: When I met Troy Aikman, we had a he was giving out like some footballs and stuff and different moats and it was throwing them to the crowd and we had they were those are mini footballs and he had one full-size one that I believe was signed and that was going to one of our older employees and he was going to throw it all the way across the room but we didn't know if he was going to catch it or not, you know catching it from. Quarterback stole some life in the arms, so Troy instead walked it to her and said, "You're gonna be Emmett Smith instead," and uh, did a handoff for that. So that was uh, my most recent Emmett Smith-related moment when uh, our employee Beverly got the football and got to be Emmett Smith. In Troy Aikman's words, to take that handoff and probably display it in her office. I got to go by her office one of these days and see if that ball is still there.
1: Yeah, and I forgot to mention with Flozell Adams played from '98 to 09, so that means he blocked for Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith?
2: I think the biggest reaction I got from that picture too was just how big NFL players are. And the reason I bring that up is because I mentioned earlier in the show, um, seeing Parsons, and if I do, you know, mentioning it. And I'm, I'm just thinking of how many pictures I could potentially take of people that make me look even smaller than I already am. Because that was the overwhelming response to the Aikman pick was, well, that guy is huge or NFL players are tall. And then Parsons is huge as well. And he's in the process of adding even more weight. So maybe I don't need a picture with Parsons.
1: Well, you say that, but then there's Deuce Vaughn and Cavante Turpin who are out there getting <laughs> tackled by those guys. Hey,
2: Deuce Vaughn is going to make the Landry shift an actual practical like tr- strategy again. You know, get those linemen, big tall guys, standing up, and you can hide your running back behind it. Shift back down, and you don't know where Deuce Vaughn went. The Landry shift is alive and well. It's not just a victory for Mason Fing anymore because of Deuce Vaughn.
1: And Cowboys fans are hoping to see it at least seventeen times over the next year you've been listening to the hidden yardage podcast follow sean martin at sean martin nfl myself at the real mark lane on twitter subscribe to the hidden yardage podcast on apple spotify tune in and stitcher so there it is